Good evening, everyone. Our uh, our final night, our final night with uh, with Hebrews. I uh, I came across this poem and I thought it would be kind of uh, appropriate for uh, for tonight. Uh, it starts. Uh, there was a young poet in Japan whose poetry no one could scan. When told it was so, he replied, "Yes, I know, but I tried to get as many words in the last line as I can." <laughs> That's kind of what our mission is tonight. Final night, and we got to squeeze everything else that we can into uh, into this final couple hours as we go through the Hebrews chapter 12, last half of it, and all of chapter 13. So uh, why don't we open up with a, a word of prayer, and uh, and we'll see what Father has for us tonight. Heavenly Father, what a what a pleasure this has been so far to uh, to study Your Word and to really mine the depths of what it means to be in covenant with You and to have you in us and, and what you've done. And I pray, Father, that tonight would be another incredible night where we don't just know about you, but we get to know you. We know your heart. We get to hear what you want to say to us. And we can experience in a greater way what it means to have an intimate relationship with you. Because that's what you're after and that's what we're after as well. So, Father, I confess my dependence upon you and ask that you bless these people, not by what I say, but what they hear you saying through me. And I look forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter chapter 12. Uh, we, we left off in verse 11, but uh, to kind of dive right into chapter, chapter 12, or verse 12 chap, of chapter 12, we need to understand, again, how this letter just continues to flow. This letter isn't a, a series of independent thoughts and chapters. It's a letter. And whenever you write a letter, it just naturally flows and naturally follows a, a logical route. And so this section, essentially, if we want to call it that way, really began all the way back in chapter 10 of verse, uh, in verse 19, where the writer of Hebrews had just wrapped up talking about the better promises of this new and better covenant. And what we now have in this great, incredible covenant. The fact that we've been totally forgiven, completely forgiven by that one act of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then also, we've been made completely and totally righteous. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to now encourage these believers because what they were going through, what they were suffering through. These, uh, these Jewish Christians were going through tremendous persecution. They were... Um, being uh, being beaten, being humiliated, being um, ridiculed, rejected. They were being cut off by their own family and friends. And so he begins to encourage them in chapter in chapter 10, the last half of that. And that led him into that great chapter of chapter 11. Maybe one of the greatest chapters of all the New Testament and really, really all the entire Bible. But uh, in chapter 11 there of Hebrews, the writer had some uh, encouraging words for them, I think, to to recall some of their stories of the past about what God had done. And so we saw in verse 32, What more shall we say, for time will fail me, if I tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead. Incredible, magnificent days of God where, where God came through and people were rescued and saved. And, and there would have been great excitement and rejoicing as to what God did. But then he goes on and he tells about how people were tortured. They were not accepting the release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom this world was not worthy. There were some difficult days, days where they had to endure tremendous pain, tremendous suffering. But it was one that they willingly accepted. It was one where they understood that there was something greater coming their way. I, uh, I heard about a story uh, many, many years ago when uh, slavery was still allowed uh, of a group of slaves that were on a very isolated island. 
And the landowner hated Christians to the point where he didn't want anybody to come on that island who was going to evangelize and, and spread the gospel. And so there was these group of young men, young by you know late teens, early 20s, who you know couldn't believe that there was a group of people, these slaves, who would never hear about Jesus because of this mean old landowner. Owner. And so what they decided to do is they sold themselves into slavery. Imagine that. 19, 20, 21, entire lives ahead of them, and they willingly sold themselves into slavery, knowing they would never, ever get out of it. It wasn't that they were temporarily going on a short-term missions trip. This was, I give up my entire life to become a slave for one purpose. Now I get to go and talk to those people. Because now I get a room with them, I get a bunk with them, I get to eat with them, I get to work alongside of them. And they were willing to surrender everything in this world in order to witness and to, to be with those other slaves. And they had an understanding that there is something greater in this world. There is something more incredible, more magnificent than just the pleasures and the riches of this world. They were seeking a far better city. And that's what we read about in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Men and women of God, these great faithful men and women of God, who by faith perform tremendous acts, because what they were pursuing is something greater than what we have here. And so that, that message of people suffering really led into Hebrews chapter 12. Um, in the first 11 verses, which what we looked at last week, which is some of the, really I think, um, a, a part of the, the gospel that has been often neglected. Uh, or at least uh, undertaught. And that's about the role of suffering and what suffering can do in the life of the Christian and who's really at you know behind it and what, what's going on with that suffering, that there's a purpose to it, that this is from the hand of a loving Father who is trying to discipline us, who, and yes, it uses the words like scourging and affliction and so forth, but that is the love of Father bringing us to maturity so that we seek more than just what's in this world. That instead, we get to know Him, we get to know His heart. We get to know what it means to walk and live in Jesus. We get to, as it says, share in His life and in His holiness. And that's really the point. And some have said, well, that's only you know suffering when you are being persecuted for Christ. So when you're going out and handing out tracts and someone spits in your face, that kind of tribulation, yes, that counts. But not everything else. Well, that's not what Romans 8, 28 and 29 says. That says that we know that God causes all things to work together for our good. So all tribulations, all good things, all bad things. It doesn't matter if it's because you got sick. It doesn't matter if a loved one died or a loved one isn't, uh, got some, uh, was born uh, with some defects. Whether you lost your job, whether someone doesn't like you, whatever you're facing, it's an opportunity for you and I to be conformed to the image of Christ. That we might know Him. That's really the goal. And, and God doesn't say, well, I would love to use this, but this is just regular suffering, so I can't. He doesn't care. He's far more interested in your heart that He'll do whatever it takes that we might experience Him. So that's really the, where we left off, this wonderful message of suffering. Isn't that exciting? That all discipline for the moment doesn't seem joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, those who've learned and understood what Father's doing, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Well, that now leads us into verse 12. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to do is now encourage people to help one another, to understand that you're not alone in this. And you're not supposed to be alone in this. Why, why earlier in chapter 10 he said, don't forsake the gathering of one another, because it's so important that we come along and encourage one another. So in verse 12, Therefore, strengthen the hands of the, that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So he's trying to encourage these people and have them, you know, if, if you're doing okay, then, you know, maybe there's someone else out there that's not doing okay. So go to them and strengthen them and encourage them and, and so forth. And so I, I was thinking about how do I... How do I illustrate this point and, uh, and really drive it home so we understand what's going on? And then Father brought to my mind the story of a man named Derek Redman. I don't know if that name sounds familiar at all. Anyone like Olympics? I'm an Olympicholic. I one time I, I did the alcoholic test and I just replaced Olympics instead of alcohol. You know, do you ever watch Olympics alone? Yeah. Do you ever think about the Olympics when you're not watching the Olympics? Yeah. 
Um, so I, I, do, I was an Olympic holic, and I, I fully admit to that, and I'm in treatment for that. But uh, Derek Redman, in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, he was a, a British 400-meter sprinter. And uh, the previous Olympics, he had to withdraw 10 minutes before his heat because he had an Achilles uh, heel injury. And so 10 minutes before he, he was ready to run in 88, he had to pull out. So he had to wait four years, and he's back. 1992, Barcelona, Spain, and he is now the favorite to win the gold medal. And so here is one of the races that uh, we're going to look at of what happens to Derek Redmond. Imagine the disappointment. Training all your life for this moment, only to miss it four years earlier, and now you're ready to go, and then 175 meters in, not even halfway in, pulls up lane and the pain and the discouragement and wanting to go and at least finish the race but having it so hard and you know who that man was that burst onto the track it was his dad did you notice how people try to prevent him he was having none of it get out of my way it's my son and he meets his son, and he hold on, holds on to him. And then others try to come up to him again and try to pull him off the track. And did you see Dad? He wasn't so quiet and patient, was he? He was rather forceful. Saying, there's no way I'm not finishing this race with my son. We're going to finish it. We started it together, and we're going to finish it together. And so he was determined to finish that race. And they did. And you see what happens is you and I, we're like Derek. We've been running. We've come up lame. And now we need to finish the race. And it's not easy. And make no mistake, it's Father. He is the one that will come alongside of you. He will be the one to fight for you, to care for you, to carry you across and make sure you get to the end. Guaranteed. But you see, you know who He uses, Father? You know who Father uses? You and I. Because where does He live? In us. So when Father wants to go and encourage someone, He often sends His, his, own, his own kids so that He could do it through them. And the reason He does that, I think, is that He wants to include more people in it. Why only encourage one? Why not encourage two at the same time? And so you and I, we have this tremendous opportunity to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, to make straight the paths of the feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And the word here for healed literally means to be made whole. And that's really what Father's doing in you and I, is He's making us whole again. And we get to participate in that. What a, what a great opportunity for, for that, to help others. Well, then he goes on and begins to do a, a warning on the danger of bitterness. Verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be, may be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it for it with tears. Bitterness will kill you. That's really what will happen. Bitterness is so dangerous, it's so damaging. Because all it does is it begins to poison you. And, and I think, you know, the writer of Hebrews here is writing to people to not be bitter towards those who are persecuting you. And it would be so understandable. I mean, they've just taken all your goods. They've blacklisted you. They've spat on you. They've called you every name under the sun. They've done horrible things to you. And yet, he says, don't be bitter towards them. But you see, there's another person that these people might be bitter towards. And that's who? They might be bitter towards God. Because maybe they feel God's failed them. God hasn't protected them enough. Or, or God hasn't um, answered their prayers the way he wanted, they wanted Him to answer it. Sometimes we say, well, well God answered your prayer when, he, when you know, he does something. Well, of course He answered your prayer. He just doesn't always give you what you want. But He always answers the prayers. And these people might become bitter when God hasn't done what they wanted Him to do. 
And so he warns them, don't miss out on this. Don't let this root of bitterness, which all does is springs up and it causes trouble. And then the result of it, many may be defiled. I see that so many times sitting in that counseling room. There is that one lady in particular that I, I think of that after 20 plus years living with a very verbally and sometimes even physically abusive husband, this man began to see freedom. He began to learn what Christianity was really all about. He was a Christian all those years, but he was a hard, mean, cruel man. But now he began to discover what it means for Jesus to live in him, for the, what grace really is. And he completely changed. He was so different. And you would think that this woman would celebrate now that she's married to a whole new man and didn't have to pay for a wedding. But instead she was bitter. Instead of praising and rejoicing with Father, she was so angry and so bitter that it took 20 years for it to happen. If God could have done it, why not do it 20 years ago, she said. And she was so angry and so bitter, she just began to isolate herself more and more. And the more gracious and more he learned about Christ living in her, the harder, the meaner, and the, the more bitter she got. To the point where she separated herself from him, and she ended up having to be committed to a mental hospital for a while, because she was literally going manic and going crazy. And you see this root of bitterness that spring up, it causes trouble. Many may be defiled. They had three kids. And they all got to witness all this bitterness, all this pain, all this suffering, because she was unwilling to rejoice. And so the thing is, bitterness will hurt you. It will hurt others, but it will hurt you the most. Charles Stanley talks about bitterness in the sense of, if I'm bitter towards you, I have a glass of water and it's full of poison. And I'm going to drink the poison thinking it's going to kill you. But all the while, who's it killing? It's killing yourself. And so the only answer to the bitterness is to forgive. Forgive. Which really, when you understand how you've been forgiven, then how can you not? I mean, when you understand that by what Jesus has done on the cross, every one of your sins has been paid for. But not only did He pay for your sins, who, others, who else's sins did He pay for? Everybody else's. The person you're bitter towards, He paid for their sins too. So who are you not? to hold, Or who are you to withhold forgiveness? Who are you to not forgive? The answer is clear. And you see, it's the story of Matthew 18 where Jesus meets the man, the, the parable of the two debtors and how one man with a small debt, or sorry, really the man with the large debt is forgiven, but then he can't forgive the man with the small debt. And you see, that's what happens with you and I. We have a large, large debt against God. When, when people say, but you don't understand what this person's done to me. No, maybe not. But I do know what Jesus has done for you. And I do know what Jesus has done for this other person. And I don't care what He's done to you compared to what Jesus has done for you and them. It simply doesn't compare. And so forgiveness will set you free. You remember in that story how the man who wouldn't forgive the guy with the small debt, what ended up happening to him? He was sent off to the torture chamber. You know what the torture chamber is? It's just bitterness. It just eats you up. All kinds of issues, all kinds of problems. Even the, the secular world, the world has come to see this. There is one man who, who runs a mental institution. He said, if uh, my patients understood forgiveness, really understood forgiveness for themselves and other people, 95% of them can go home tomorrow. That's how paralyzing bitterness is. And so if you have bitterness towards someone, I implore you, let it go. It's just killing you. You're the one that's missing out on experiencing the grace of God, the life and, and power of Jesus. So let it go. Don't let it eat you up. And then in verse 18, the writer is now going to begin an invitation to intimacy. Verse 18, he says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound, which sound was, was such that those who, begged, those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. 
For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. What he's referring to is when Moses received the, the Old Covenant, when he received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and that there was earthquakes and thunder and the cloud, and it was terrifying for people. And they were told that not even to come near the mountain, because if you touch it, you would be dead. And so there was great fear. And so what he's referring to here is really the Old Covenant, the old way of living. And he's saying, don't return to that, because there's no life here. It's fearful. It's terrifying. It's empty. And so don't go back to that old way of living. Instead, he, he implores them, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What you and I have been called to is a different covenant, the new covenant, one where you can run to Jesus, one where you can run and jump up onto the lap of your Father at any time. No longer do you have to prostrate yourself before God. In Jude, it says that we can stand before Him. That's incredible. In the Old Testament, whenever somebody met God, their posture was face first in the dirt. But now you and I, we get to stand in His presence. That's because we've been sanctified. We've been made holy and righteous and acceptable. And so we can run to Father. We can embrace Him and allow Him to embrace us. We can now experience intimacy with the Trinity. And we've been invited to be a part of that. You see, what He's saying is, don't return back to the old principles of living. Run to the person. And that's so important for us to understand because I think so much of our Christianity today has become all about principles. We want to follow rules. We want to follow formulas. We want to follow the six steps to success. And we try to reduce Christianity to a series of principles to follow. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is something far greater. And so what we've been called to is to follow the person. To follow the personhood of Jesus. That's what we're implored to do. Now, don't get me wrong, principles aren't bad. There are many principles in the Old and the New Testament that are very wise and very good. But the problem with principles, if you follow principles, is that you don't need faith for that. You give me the series and the, ser the list of rules of what to do, then I'll just go and do it. And then I don't need Jesus for that. But Christianity has always been empowered by the life of Jesus. It's His life. And so what we're called to do is to seek after the person. And when you seek after the person, you will discover the principles. But when you seek after the principles, you will not find the person. And so what he is imploring them, what he is calling them to do, is to seek the person. Seek Jesus. Don't return back to the old ways of living, which is Judaism for them, following the law and the Ten Commandments and so forth. There's nothing wrong with them. They're good for what they're meant for, but instead, we've been called to something greater. We've been called to something better, Jesus Himself. Does that make sense? And that brings us then to our fifth and final warning of this book. And really, these all five of these great warnings are really saying all the same thing. They're all about walking with Jesus, depending upon Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus. And so the fifth warning is to not deny the gospel. In verse 25 of chapter 12, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape uh, when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Now, when you, whenever you study the scriptures, there is always one rule that is so important to understand. All scriptures agree with themselves. They never contradict one another. They're all in agreement with one another. And so what's so wonderful is then is that we know what some passages are saying and what they're not saying right off the bat because we know what other passages are saying. And so whenever you come to a tricky or a complicated passage, the best thing to do is to go look at simpler passages and use those passages to help you understand and interpret the more difficult ones. 
Hence the reason we know that this isn't a passage about losing your salvation. Because there are countless other passages, many of them much simpler and really straightforward and easy to understand, that would say that you it's impossible for the believer to lose his salvation. And so we know that's not it, so we can rule it out. But then we can also look to other passages to help us understand what this warning is really all about. So let's look at the context of it and see what he goes on to say about this warning. In verse 26, and he says, His voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we received the kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Well, what's he saying here? Well, let's think about the shaking. The fact that he's, he's promising that there is a shaking to come. And everything is going to be shook. Heavens and earth. There is no escaping this. And this isn't talking about the earthquake that's going to cause California to fall in the sea one day. This is the earthquake that will rattle the entire universe. There's no hiding from this. There's no running from this earthquake. Meaning, who will be shaken? Us. Not just the unbelievers, but believers alike. But the good news is that, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that means that we will be able to withstand this. You see, what this is a warning of is about the judgment day that's coming for believers, for you and I. And what's going to, the shaking is going to do is help to discern and evaluate the quality of the works that we do. It's going to determine whether the works that we do are of eternal quality or if they are our own fleshly efforts. And that's what's going to be shaken. It's in essence going to discover whether your works were a house of cards or whether they were built on something solid and firm. That's what this shaking's about. So it's going to kind of test the quality of the works. See what he says, yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken. What we do on our own strength, that's the stuff that when it shook will fall and crumble and disappear. But that which cannot be shaken, which is the works of Christ, that will stand. And it goes on to talk about this this fact of its service and how our God is a consuming fire. You see, there's another passage that talks about this aspect of, of shaking. And so what this is, is it's all about abiding. That's really what this instruction is. Another way to look at it is don't deny the gospel, or the positive way is continue to abide in Jesus. We'll explain what that means in a few seconds, but let's take a look at the passage that talks about, this this other passage that talks about this fire. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15, Paul writing to the church of Corinth, he says, For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, that day meaning the judgment, will show it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So here he's talking about fire. In Hebrews, it was a shaking. But it's the same idea of being tested to see what can withstand it, what can hold up to this. Well, if you put fire to... Do the gold, silver, and precious stones, what will happen to them? Nothing. But you put fire to wood, hay, and straw, what do you got? You got a bigger fire. (laughs) Because it's going to get all burnt up. And so that's what the fire is going to do. So whatever is done in the power of Jesus, that's the gold, silver, and precious stones. But whatever is done in my own strength, no matter how wonderful and how good that may look, If it's me doing it in my own power, in my own abilities, it won't stand a chance. It's going to go up in smoke. And so if any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Does that mean he's going to lose his salvation? Of course not. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So what this fire will do is remove all those fleshly works. And isn't that exciting? That's wonderful. 
I mean, maybe maybe you might not look so forward to that because all your stuff that you've done in your own strength will be, suddenly be disappear and gone. And you thought, well, I, I spent a lifetime building that kingdom only to see it go up in flames. But the reality is, you won't want it. On the other side of eternity, you really don't want it there. You only want the gold, jewels, and precious stones. That's all you're looking for. And so this will purify you. It will take it all away. And all you'll be left is what Jesus did through you. And so the, the invitation is, don't suffer loss by wasting your time on the flesh. Instead, pursue what awaits us. Pursue what's greater, what's of eternal quality, which is Jesus living through you. Now, if you're doing it for the reward, then you'll have your reward here on earth. It's not about getting the reward that we do it. We do it because we want to know Him. The reward's just the byproduct of the relationship we have with Jesus. And so what this, another passage that speaks to it, is the passage in John 15, uh, the abiding on the vine. And here Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Meaning, you and I can't produce anything of quality in and of ourselves. What we need to do is we need to abide, we need to rest, we need to rely upon the strength of Jesus, who is the true vine. So it said in verse 1, there are many false vines, but Jesus is the true vine, the real vine, the one that will provide the real life. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that doesn't mean you can't do anything. The Tower of Babel is really a great illustration of what man can do. God recognizing man was trying to build this great tower to reach God. And God said, you know what? Man can do anything he puts his mind to. We better scatter him. We better frustrate him. And so he scrambled their tongues and then the tower just hit a building problem, I guess. And, and they stopped building the tower. But man, what he puts his mind to, he can accomplish a lot. The problem is, how much is it worth? Nothing. Because it will go through that fire, and the wood, hay, and stubble that man's product is, it will be reduced to nothing. It's got no eternal value. So that's the need for you and I to abide in Him, to live with Jesus, or to walk with Him, to talk with Him. For if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and then gather, they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Meaning the moment you and I, we, we start, stop abiding in him, we stop trusting and relying upon him, then all that work is just going to get all burnt up. There's no value to it. You see, here's a great quote. Fire will destroy what it cannot purify, but it will purify what it cannot destroy. Isn't that great? Think about that. It will destroy what it cannot purify. The wood, hay, and stubble of your own works, gone. Forever gone. But it will purify what it cannot destroy. Remember we saw in that passage in, in Corinthians, it cannot destroy you. You will make it through on the other side. Therefore, you will be purified. You will be saved. You might smell like smoke, but you will be through on the other side and you will have that purification. And so that's, that's not something to be afraid of. It's something to, to look forward to. So what does it mean to abide then? What does that look like? Well, let me give you an illustration that I think will help. And to, to illustrate, I want you to think of, well, we have two people. Uh, we'll have a, uh, a man of God. A holy man. So we'll use me as the illustration. Um, and I wake up and I start my day and I determine to do a lot of stuff for God. And I get up and I don't really recognize that God's with me. I want to do stuff for Him. That's my primary goal. And so I get up and I make breakfast for my family, for my girls. And, and so I even serve breakfast to my wife in bed so she doesn't have to get up. 
And uh, then I come to work here and I begin to plan and prepare for tonight and the talking to you guys. And I study the Word of God and I, I look up the original languages and the, and the tense of the verbs and what that word mean and how that applies here and all the cross-references. And, and I discover some incredible riches through reading different people's commentaries about the passage. And then all, while that's going on, I'm meeting with people and I'm helping them also discover freedom, whether it be when they come into the office and I, I make time for appointments or I'm maybe texting people over the phone and, and, or taking a phone call and helping people deal with issues, uh, be it marital issues to help re- reconcile them, bring them together. Maybe I even meet someone who's not a Christian and I begin to evangelize towards them and, and, and lead them to receive Christ as, as their Savior. And then I come and I preach this message to you guys this evening. But I do it all in my own strength. You know, the sad reality is I can do all that in my own strength. I can do every one of those things. And when you look back on it, I mean, I've studied the Word. I've preached the Word. I've taught the Word. I've counseled. I I saved the marriage maybe. And I even invited someone into the kingdom of God. But I did that all in my own strength. How much is it worth? Nothing. It might keep everyone else warm by the fire, but that's about it. That's about it. Well, let's contrast me to a Bay Street banker. Somebody who is dealing in the financial markets, who is making the 1% richer. So they can get into the upper 1% of 1%. And so they are selling stocks and trades. That's what they do for a living. But when they get up, they say, Father... I look forward to going to work today because I know I'm going with you. And whatever you have in store for me, I'm excited about. And so let's go to work together, you and me. And he gets to work and he says, Father, I've I've got four different companies that we should think about investing in. What do you think? And he talks to Father about that. And as he's reading and studying up on these companies, he says, well, Father, this is interesting. Is this relevant to what's going on here? And the guy says, no. What about this one? Oh, yeah, this one is relevant. Oh, okay. And he starts to see more and more insights. And so he makes the trade. And by the end of the day, he's just raised another $3 million for his clients. Money. Filthy money. But who did he trust in? Father. So I introduce people to Jesus and I reconcile marriages and I even bring them into the kingdom. And it's worthless. Where this man makes $3 million for heathens, for unbelievers, and that's of eternal value. And the reason isn't so much what was done, but rather who did it. Who is the source? And in the abiding life, the source is who? It's Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what you do. Whether it be that you stay home and you change diapers, whether it be you wash windows, be it you sweep floors, be it you preach gospel, the gospel message, be it you work anywhere, be it you just stay at home. It's an opportunity for you and I to abide, to trust, to rest in Jesus, allowing Him to do what He wants. Allowing Him to reproduce His life in you and I. And that's the stuff that stands. That's the stuff that this fire cannot destroy. It simply can't destroy. Because it's the life of who? It's the life of Jesus. So in this warning in verse 25, we're told to see to it or take heed or be determined that you do not refuse or deny or ignore or set aside or decline him, him, which is Jesus, who's speaking. And the speaking here is a present active tense, meaning Jesus is presently speaking today. And He's presently speaking to you and I. That's what's going on. You've probably all seen this verse or heard this verse before in Revelation 3.20. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door knocking. And whoever opens the door... I will enter in, I will come in to Him, and I will dine with Him, and He with me. We've often used this verse as an evangelistic tool. That Jesus is knocking at the heart of the unbeliever. And if they would receive Him, 
He would receive them. And there's an invitation to come in. And that's true. Absolutely. But I think there's another meaning for you and I that this verse holds. I think Jesus had more than just the unbeliever in mind when He was talking about this. I think He also had you and I in mind. You see, think about how we are constructed. We are made of three parts. Spirit, soul, and body. And as a result of our salvation, as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross, He has invited you and I into relationship with Him. He has put His Spirit into your spirit to the point where your spirit and His Spirit has become one. 1 Corinthians 6.17 He was joined Himself to the Lord is now one spirit with Him. So we are our one spirit. But now He's trapped in that spirit. And now He comes to the soul... And I think He's knocking on the door of your soul into your mind and into your will. And He's he's desperately wanting to come in. And if we will open the door and invite Him into our soul in that moment, then He will dine with you and you with Him. This word dine here, it's tough to translate here. It's been translated many different ways. Old King James, I think, uses the word sup. He will sup with Him and and you with Him. Or sup, he, you, he will sup with you and you with Him. Or commune. It's talking about sitting down for a meal. A very intimate thing. And what happens is this, this opening the door to Jesus needs to be done moment by moment by moment. It's not just a one-time thing where you know I did that five years ago. Or I did that um, ten weeks ago. Or I did that ten hours ago. Or even I did it ten minutes ago. It's a, are you listening to Him now? It's a moment by moment by moment abiding. It's a moment by moment by moment trusting. And so it's wonderful that I trusted Him 10 minutes ago, but what about now? And you see, the mistake many Christians make is with their quiet times, with their devotionals. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just the problem is when they close their book and they go off to wherever they're going... They kind of end it there. And then Jesus is left knocking on the door saying, I'm not done yet. Can I come in? I got more to say. I got a lot more I want to talk to you about. And so see to it that you do not ignore or deny the one who is presently speaking. Who is speaking right now. And so he's speaking to us. But there's some things that get in the way, I think. Things that hamper us from hearing from him. Things that prevent us from really enjoying what He's wanting to say to Him. And one of them is just simply busyness. We're so busy. I'm not so young that I... I, mean, I remember when computers came in. And the, uh, the, the thought with computers is that they were going to make our life simpler. That computers, because they can do so much, it will free us up to do so many other things. And so we'll have far more free time because you won't have to spend all that hours and hours and hours doing paperwork. Now the computer can automatically do it for you, giving you more time to do what you want to do. How many people discovered that? Not the case. All it did is meant, well, now you can accomplish more. And you got to work harder. And then we get smartphones. And smartphones will make your life easier now. Because it's so much simpler. You just send a little message here, a phone call there, and it'll be so much easier. And then what do you discover? <laughs> More difficult. Because now anyone can get a hold of you at any point in time. And now you, you never stop working. And so we live in a society, in a culture, where busyness is almost looked at as something to be encouraged. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm so busy. As if that's a badge of honor. You know, I'm busy, but I don't know if that's good. I don't think we're meant to be that busy. I think we've taken on things that Father doesn't want to do. And so it happens sometimes with all that busyness is you crowd out what Jesus is trying to say to you and I. It's almost like He's speaking to us in a whisper, but the world is screaming at us with a loud voice. And that busyness makes it almost impossible to hear Him. Unless you listen. Unless you intently decide to listen. See to it. Take heed. 
This isn't something that will just drop into your lap. This is something you need to be looking for. And when you're looking for it, you can find Jesus anywhere. It it blows my mind that, that I can find Jesus in nature. I can find Jesus driving down the 401. I can find Jesus watching movies, listening to to the radio, be it Christian or non-Christian music. In fact, there's a lot of non-Christian music that I think are greater worship songs than Christian music is. And you can, when you're looking for it, when you're hearing it, you can see it. But our busyness tends to drown out the voice of God if we're not careful. Another is just, for some, just refusing to go to Him. And that may sound you know, ridiculous, but yet that's what happens. There are some who just choose not to go to Him. I mean, think about the warnings we've looked at. In chapter 2, the, the writer says, don't let this wonderful good news, this gospel, this grace, this life of Christ, just pass you by. Well, it's because people have refused. They've chosen not to go to Him. They've chosen to go to some other thing. They've replaced it with an idol. I mean, that was again what he warned them about in chapter 10. They turned their back on this covenant. They turned their back on God. And so there's some that refuse to listen to Him. There's others that are so self-centered. Meaning, they would rather have pleasure or comfort or ease than they would have God. And so when it's, you know, rather than taking time to hear what God wants to say to them, they'd be much more interested in doing other things. And doing the things aren't, isn't the problem. Be it going for a hike or working or watching TV, that's not the problem. It's just that they've excluded Jesus. And they're not looking for Him. Or maybe just simple unbelief. There's a lot of people who don't believe God can speak to them. Now, it's not that God speaks to you in an audible voice where you can hear it coming. I mean, in my house, He just tends to write on the walls. We're running out of wall space, so we've got to move. No. It's not that way. I mean, I wish it was that way. I also wish he could talk to me through a donkey. That would be pretty cool. Um, but he doesn't do it that way. Instead, it's something that is a sense that you feel uh, this is the way to go. Or often for me, he brings to mind Scripture verses that show me what he wants to do. And so I, I recognize that as him. And so it's, it takes some training. It takes some time to learn to hear what he's saying. All the more reason why that suffering is so important. Because when you're going through that pain and suffering, He's got your attention. When things are going easy, we don't tend to need Him. But when you know it all hits the fan and it's all falling apart, then we need Him and then we go to Him. And then we start to listen. So take heed. See to it that you do not set aside and ignore what He's saying to you right now. Because what He's saying to you right now is the most important thing you'll hear. Amen? But if we don't hear from Him, then we don't know what He wants to do, and how can we trust Him then? There's a a story that uh, a man named Michael Wells, he's an author, he wrote a book called Sidetracked in the Wilderness, and he shares this story about a botanist. Now what's a botanist do? Plants. He studies plants. He knows plants inside and out. And so as part of his research and studying of plants, his, uh, his studies took him to India. And while he was in India, he came across this river, this river that was moving rather rapidly, and nobody was willing to actually go into the river because if they did, they you know, would often get knocked down and, and have to you know, drag their sorry wet selves out. But then he saw this really older man, really old man, with a stick go in and ford this river. And and he just was amazed by it. And then he was even more amazed to discover that the man doing it was blind. And so he's wondering, how is this old blind guy fording this incredibly dangerous river while all these young bucks are just getting swept away? So the botanist came along and said to the man, how do you do it? What's your secret? And he says, well, this is what I do. I got my stick, my walking stick. And I put the stick in front of me and I find some solid ground. And wherever I find solid ground, that's where I put my foot. And then I find another spot. And I find another piece of solid ground and that's where I put my foot. And so I just follow where my stick leads me to go. 
And the botanist says, wow, that's incredible, that's incredible. And he begins to walk away when the older man shouts out to him, and the problem with your generation is you don't have a stick. Well, the man felt a bit insulted by this and didn't know what to make of it. And so he goes home, and he's, he's sitting at home in his, uh, in, um, in his study, and he's not a believer, but he's sitting there thinking and pondering what this man said, and he looks and he discovers the Bible. He says, well, maybe I need a stick there. And so he grabs the Bible and he turns to the Bi- in the Bible. Do you know what passage? John 15. The passage of the vine. And he reads the, vi- the passage and says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. Now for a botanist, that was as clear as day. He got it right away. Because he understood how the branch receives life from the vine. And he understood and recognized that the stick he needed is who? Jesus, the person. So Jesus becomes our stick. He's the one that begins to lead us and says, this is where I want you to step. Now trust me and step here. Now poke around and, oh, here it is. This is where I want you to step. This is where I want you to go. And so what's so incredible with this gospel is he's not just telling us where to go, but then he's going to do it through us. In Ezekiel 36 and verse 27, it says that I will put my spirit within you, God's saying. God's going to say, I put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways and obey my ordinances. So God in us will choose and then do it through us. That's what Philippians 2.13 says. For it is God who is in you, both to will, to choose, where do you put the foot, and then to do the work in you, to then move the foot if you trust Him. And so we have this new and greater covenant of Christ living in us, stepping and living through us. He's our stick. But if we don't use Him, I mean, you could have the stick in the water and just start crossing the water. And what's going to happen? You'll get swept away. And so for you and I in this warning, if you and I just walk into this water, we walk through life without trusting and without abiding in Him, all that good works that we did is going to get swept away. It's going to get burned up. It's going to be shaken to nothing. But if we let the stick work, it's do its thing. If we follow Jesus and abide and we rest and we trust in Him, then the works that are produced are of eternal value and they cannot be shaken, they cannot be burned up, and they will not be swept away. Any questions? So why is that like if you are doing life with Jesus and walking with Him, um, then you follow so much? That we follow so much? Yeah, fall. Well, because we're learning. We're a lot like those toddlers. One step forward, down we go. Get up. And that's all part of the maturing process that we're on. That's the suffering. That's the training that Father's doing for you and I. And yeah, you fall. But a lot of times you'll learn more in a fall than you do in a successful step. So he's not worried. He's A, if you sin, he can cover it or really take it away. He's not worried about that. He can deal with it. He's got an answer for sin. He's more interested in your heart. He's more interested in you knowing him the way he knows you. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.